0: Manx Radio Podcasts, Powered by Shore.
1: Hello and welcome to the Women Today Podcast, a selection of our best bits from the past five days. Well this week we've talked about all sorts from sexually transmitted infections to osteopathy, the first female police officer on the Isle of Man to abortion. But let's start today with an advocate who's also quite a keen footballer.
2: Well, our guest today began her career as a trainee advocate in the litigation department of Dickinson Cruikshank. She's now a senior associate at Keynes and she holds the title of the first female and youngest ever secretary to the Isle of Man Law Society. She's also a mother of two and a very keen footballer. In fact, she's captain of the Isle of Man's women's team. Gillian Christian, thank you for joining us this afternoon.
3: Thank you very much for inviting me.
2: Oh, it's our pleasure, our pleasure. You moved to the Isle of Man at 16. Did you know even then that you wanted to enter the world of law?
3: Yeah, I think I I had my first work experience when I was 15 and I did some experience at a legal chambers in Liverpool. Uh, For two weeks I had great exposure there and after I'd done that two weeks I knew then that that was definitely what I wanted to do.
2: Why on earth law what was it that grabbed you
3: Um well I th- I spent quite a lot of time in court over those two weeks and um just the variety of the workload and I enjoyed the 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 court work in reality I, that's what I wanted to do um I liked the idea of the pressure in reality which is <laughs> quite sick really but I um I thrived on the pressure of the the experience and um really the variety of the workload and the potential to have so many different clients from different backgrounds as well
2: So what was it like moving to the island at 16? I mean it's quite a tricky age for a teenager I think anyway.
3: It was a tricky age I remember being on um, a Manx Airlines flight looking through the small Manx Tales books to see if there were any adverts for nightclubs and pubs and things so I was, <laughs> although I wasn't quite old enough, I, I had those things in my sights and um So it was pretty nerve-wracking, but it it all went great, and I think Manx people are very used to having new people to the island and very welcoming, and I'd never had any problems, fortunately.
2: I love the fact you say that you spent your first weekend on the Isle of Man sunbathing.
3: Yes, uh, on Douglas Beach of all beaches, and uh, I've never done that again anyway.
2: (laughs) I'm surprised to hear that. I'd (laughs) have thought you were out there every weekend now. Um, So you went off to university in Hull and then law school in York. Did you always want to return to the Isle of Man?
3: I no, I didn't. I didn't think I'd return here. I used to spend summers in Los Angeles with good friends of mine, and um, in fact, their family had um, a, a legal legal outfit over there. They always had potential to join. Um, however, um, I met my husband over here, and um, and I also loved the idea of the fused profession over here, where it's a combination of solicitors and barristers which meant that I didn't really have to choose was I going to train as a solicitor or was I going to train as a barrister. I sort of had the best of both worlds. Isle of Man, Los Angeles. Isle of Man, Los Angeles. <laughs>
4: wow, that's incredible. as a place very handy friends to have had. <laughs> well, it was
3: it was it was great fun. And it was uh, it was Orange County in Los Angeles. So a beautiful, beautiful place. Um, and I have been back there a couple of times since but I haven't taken my husband and children just yet. I, probably because I'd realised what a Maybe missed out on, but uh, could have
2: done plenty more sunbathing. I guess quite in exactly. LA. Quite um, exactly. So you mentioned the kind of the dual nature of of the law profession on the island. I guess that's what we're referring to when we talk of advocates. Yes. So how does it work then? What process do you have to go through? What training do you do to become an advocate on the Isle of Man?
3: You, the normal process and the process I followed was: I went to university, I then went to law school for a year. Um, I then came over here and took articles up with Dickinson Crouchank for two years. So it's a, an articleship of two years. And um, at some time during those two years, there's the Manx Bar exams to pass, which is four exams um, in four days. So quite hard work. And um, if you pass those, then you have an interview with the Alman Law Society. And at the end of that, you, you would hope that they will approve you to be a member of the Manx Bar. So um it's usually a two-year process.
2: So if you join the Manx Bar, can you practice anywhere you want or are you kind of restricted now to the island?
3: When I first um, qualified as a as a Manx advocate, the rules were different and you could then pretty much automatically qualify in England by simply writing a letter. Those rules have now changed and if I was to practice in England, I would have to take some further exams in England, albeit not quite as many as, as others.
2: So what do you think makes a good advocate?
3: Um, I think a lot of it is about client communication, keeping in touch with the client, knowing exactly what outcomes the client wants and keeping them up to date as to where you see the matter going. Obviously, in terms of advocate, you have to be quite prepared in terms of your um, court appearances. So preparation is key. And knowing when to to shut up frankly which is probably what I should use now
2: (laughs) (laughs) that's a lesson we could all learn I think actually um I always think when I when I speak to people who are advocates or lawyers or people studying law that so many people must get into it because they watch courtroom dramas and they love the kind of big speeches to the jury at the end do you ever get to do that in
3: real life it's definitely not like it is on television but I have to say I've had a couple of hearings recently where we've we've had some fun but not not to that extent you know we occasionally can stand up and object to something but it but it's normally frowned upon and it's all fairly friendly uh, which I guess is probably a good thing but not quite as exciting
2: but you do get to wear a wig and gown
3: yes I I quite enjoy that sadly every now and again (laughs)
2: Well, alongside being a successful advocate, you are also a very keen footballer, as I said. So how did you start playing football?
3: Um, I moved When I moved back to the island after university, I'd always played hockey at, um, at university. And I was fortunate enough to watch the opening ceremony of the NatWest Island Games, I think in 2001. And um, I, my father and I were watching it, and I said to my dad, "Oh, this is, looks such a great event. I'd really like to get involved." But hockey wasn't part of the NatWest Island Games at the time, so I joined a local football club gymnasium, and um, and that that was it. Really, two months after that, I was in the in the Island Games, and I didn't know all of the rules, but I uh, I got by just.
2: <laughs> but two months of training, and suddenly you're representing the Isle of Man. You must be quite good.
3: I I my I have two brothers and my oldest brother was a very very good footballer and he and my father used to practice in the back garden and I was the cone so um I spent a lot of my childhood being the cone I think that meant that I probably picked up some tips in reality so um although I'd never played properly before I'd been in the garden a long time
2: That's such an amazing starring role on the pitch as the code. Well, we are going to talk about your sporting accolades a little later in the programme as well, and particularly your legal work and how it relates to what you do in sport. But for now, tell me what happened when you received a
3: red card in Rhodes. Okay, um, so we—I was captain at the time, and for for some reason, the referee wanted to talk to the captains as opposed to the team managers. And we were in a bronze medal playoff, so um, for the first time, so the best we'd ever achieved. So we were all very nervous. Unfortunately, both teams turned up. It was the Isle of Man and Orland. And we had the same colour kit. And because we were classed as the home team, we had to change kit. But we didn't have a spare kit with us. And um, we didn't have a spare kit back at the hotel either. Each player had their own kit. So um, I tried to plead with the opposition captain for them to change their kit. Because they had a spare kit with them. Nat West Island Games being the friendly games, etc. Anyway, the the captain refused to, to let us borrow their kit. So... Um, The referee said, well, if you don't, you know, if you don't change kit, you sacrifice the game. So he said, you either change kit or play in these bibs and handed me this dirty, dusty old bib. Um, And at the time, it was about 45 degrees in Rhodes. And a lot of our young players were quite body conscious. So to wear just a bib and a bra was not acceptable to most. And of course, in the heat, it wasn't wasn't the best idea. So uh, anyway, eventually I had no choice, so I had to take this bib. But in, in temper, I threw the bib at the floor and said, this is supposed to be the friendly games, blah, blah, blah. Um, I went then and did my warm-up and was called five minutes later. My manager said, Jill, you'd you better get back to the referee's room. He's given you a red card. I said, what for? He said, apparently you threw the bib at their captain. I said, no, I didn't throw it at her. I threw it at the floor. And um, anyway, in comes Tim Glover, unbeknownst to me, who decides to... <laughs> To play this live on radio, and I was pleading with the referee, "Come on! I, I didn't throw it at her. Bring the captain in, and, and you can ask her. I'm sure she'll, sure she'll agree with me." Fortunately, she did, and she accepted. I hadn't thrown it at her, and he changed his mind. But the, the headline in the paper was bras Bibs and Brawls," and there was a picture <laughs> of the team um wearing these dirty bibs, and I refused to go on the picture, and. Um, and as I said, fortunately, the referee did change his mind. And fortunately, I was quite civilised in my discussion with him to get him to change his mind because it was all aired live on Manx Radio. <laughs> my parents and husband at the time were absolutely worried about me and, uh, and we lost the game. But it was, it's, a, it's a good story. Are women right to talk about and shout their
1: abortion tales? Well, we're asking that now because since Friday, women have been sharing their experiences of abortion on social media using the hashtag ShoutYourAbortion. Now, abortion activists say it's to speak out against the stigma and misinformation that still surrounds that procedure. And it all started in the United States, and it was in response to Republican threats to defund the women's health organisation Planned Parenthood, which, among other things, does provide abortion. Abortion Services. More than 70,000 people have tweeted hashtag ShoutYourAbortion since Friday and here are just a few examples of what they've said.
0: My abortion was in 2008. It saved my life and allowed me to escape an abusive, emotionally and physically violent man. Hashtag ShoutYourAbortion. I had an abortion at 17. Not a hard decision to make
2: but a very hard one to cope with alone. It could have been much easier without the stigma
1: Hashtag shout your abortion. Hashtag shout your abortion. I was 11 and raped. Go ahead and tell me I'm in the wrong, but not the 36-year-old man who did it. Go on, I dare you. So today we're asking not if these women were right to have abortions, but should people use their personal experiences to make political points? It's interesting, isn't it, Kate Jo? I think um, we did have trouble talking about this down in the office because it is an incredibly difficult subject, isn't it?
2: I was actually quite shocked at how much just the three of us struggled to talk about this topic. I think, you know, over the last nine months that we've been doing this programme, we have talked about all sorts. I don't think there's anything that's made us too uncomfortable, apart from maybe Joe's comments about sex robots. <laughs> but um, I think it was really, really striking how we all kind of shut down a little bit talking about abortion. And we were all really, really stepping on eggshells trying not to offend each other
1: and I think that's the point isn't it I always worry when talking about something particularly so sensitive I always think you don't know anybody else's experience it's not something that people want to talk about openly particularly there is still a stigma um, surrounding it and and from my point of view I I do worry a lot about offending people unintentionally
4: Yes and I'm very honest as you know about most things Um, I've been very honest about postnatal depression and that was a subject that not many talked about before and now obviously everyone seems to be a lot more open about that Um, and I think we're now getting to a stage where maybe we are starting to be about more open about our own personal experiences this is one for sure that i'm not so sure i would be so open about
2: i think the thing about abortion as well is when as soon as you start to talk about it it is wrapped up in so many other parts and and facets of our society it is of course wrapped up with religion and politics and all these other bits of our world when as soon as we start talking about it we kind of treading around all of those things as well.
1: So what do we think about this campaign then? Um, These women using their own experiences to shout their abortion tales?
2: I think these women are incredibly brave, firstly. But when it comes to using your personal experience to make a political point, I really think politics is personal. And I think Go for it. If you have a personal experience that has got you to a decision, then, yeah, you you should talk about it and put it into some sort of um, context of why you've made that political decision. I do
4: wonder if it would help the votes in any way in a political statement, though, because you're being quite contrary, aren't you? But then again, most political arguments are contrary anyway. Um, But I do see that people are going to be very uh, uh, welcoming, I suppose, of being so open and honest. Um, I, I don't know I, I'm finding it as you say it's a difficult one to discuss I think it's possibly one of the last things that potentially has the ability to shock people
1: maybe yeah, the kind of the I think we use this phrase far too much but the
2: kind of last taboo topic. But I think when whenever we're talking about politics, be it from people who are standing in uh, trying to get into the political world, they always bring their own personal experience with it. You might hear someone saying, "Oh, well I've spent 20 years as a teacher and therefore I'm really interested in education. I've got this experience." That's that's just part of experience as well that guides you politically. And I think when we 're talking about the separation of of your own personal views and politics, i don 't think it can really happen either from people who are actively making decisions or those who are going to be affected by those decisions in the long run. um
0: Sarah Gartland, do you have any thoughts on this? My only point would maybe be that whilst it's very it's acceptable to talk about your own experiences of it you don't know what the person you're talking to has been through so whilst you're maybe happy with it it could be completely against them and be really offensive
1: and I suppose it does have the potential also to really upset people as you say depending Absolutely. on their their own experiences it is a it's a really tricky one and um, we've got a comment kate we do
2: on facebook uh Susie says, don't like the phrase abortion activists but i certainly don't think that women should be stigmatized for having had an abortion for whatever reason it's nobody's business but their own and if they then choose to use that experience to shame the hardline bigots passing law which promote anti-choice legislation then that too is their business i'd be interested to know where our government stands on abortion rights
1: well, to end today's show, what we thought we'd do is we'd ask our guests, Sarah Gartland and Lisa Young from the Manx Osteopathic Clinic, um, for some top tips when it comes to posture and looking after ourselves. I tell you, every time I say the word posture, I do literally sit up straight. It's like one of those, maybe I've been hypnotised. Is <laughs> that what you've done, Sarah? Yeah? You hear the word posture? I might have done. Uh, yeah, <laughs> yeah. So let's, we'll, we'll talk about some scenarios in a minute, but in terms of the way that we should just be sitting, the way we should be holding ourselves, is it just sit up straight and shoulders back and all that?
0: Of sorts. Unfortunately, if you just if it's sit up shoulders back, you might be extending through your low back, which could have knock on effects. So it's it's about stacking everything up so that it's correct for your spine.
1: Oh right. Um, David texted in to say young ladies used to be taught deportment at finishing school. Does that help?
0: Absolutely. Yes, it does.
1: So we should all be wandering round with books on our head.
0: It certainly wouldn't do any harm as long as it's a gentle book and a small book, not a That's real insane. thick one. I've
4: <laughs> never actually seen anyone do that, though.
0: I can do it. I can
4: do it yeah downstairs yeah. competition I'll do time it. I'll happily oh, do it oh competition right. oh I can do it <laughs> I've got a whole set of
1: Britannica encyclopedias that might now, give you a headache <laughs> uh, we do hear all the time Lisa there are sedentary lives really bad for our backs um but do you know what loads of people we can't afford the um avoid the fact that we do spend most uh part of our day sitting at a desk so what would you recommend to try and help with that A lot of the time it is how your
2: desk is set up will really change the way it will affect you. Um, If you've got it straight, as long as you've not got... um, A lot of it comes down to ergonomics, it's sort of a big word, but it does come down to how you're sitting. If you're sat with possibly a a lumbar support and um, with uh, the screen straight straight ahead of you um, and so you've got a bit of support on the
0: forearms as well so you're not just dropping your ar- your elbows down um, and letting your sh- uh, shoulders sag so having it almost bringing it forward
2: and um, and also have making sure that the mouse is not too far away. It's it's trying to keep it as even as possible as well, and keeping it almost straight so you're not just leaning to one side.
1: And should you be getting up every now and again and having yes, a big old stretch and definitely. sort of wander around? Movement breaks is the
4: best thing. I wish we had a camera in here because you doing all the actions that go with it is <laughs> is brilliant. <laughs> um, what about children, Sarah? Um, what can we do to make sure that they're as
1: healthy as possible in terms of their bones and muscles because um you know a lot of them carry bags to school on one shoulder sort of like hunched over to one side should we be telling them to stand up straight
0: absolutely in fact i'm just having this with my 9 year old at the moment who keeps standing up and his shoulders are so round and at the moment all he keeps hearing is shoulders generally with children they will always go for a bad posture so you need to try if you can to make sure that they are standing up straight if they are carrying a heavy bag don't let them do it on one shoulder it needs to be a rucksack I know that's not the cool thing to do but I'd have a rucksack on them make sure both the the straps are in and that they're standing up straight if you can. Um, We talked a little bit about pregnancy earlier top tips during that time when your back is clearly under a lot more strain? Again, I suppose posture and heat. I found a hot bath the best thing in pregnancy. Muscles absolutely love heat. So if you are struggling, especially when pregnant and people don't oft- often want to be touched and they will be aching, they will be sore, hot bath.
1: Is there anything that we should be doing at our youthful age? I'm looking around the whole room here, Jim, um, yeah. Just to make sure that we avoid problems when we're older
0: prevention if you can um I would be going to yoga pilates gentle exercise I think people like to do the real heavy road running I'm going to go and do 100 miles <laughs> and then finish off don't stretch don't take things back to normal if we can try and look after our muscles as well by trying to put in some stretching it will help
4: I just pointed out that you've got your cross your legs crossed there Sarah and I'm always told that we should never cross our legs so what's your thoughts on that
0: I've never, really, I've never really had a problem with people crossing their legs. I find it really, really, really comfortable. Um, if you've got a hip problem, I might suggest that you don't. But if there's no joint problems, you can sit how you want, really, if it's comfy.
1: And just finally, at what point you know, should people think, OK, I need to, to go and get some proper help for, for this?
0: Generally, I would say, as a rule of thumb, if you've had a problem for more than five days, it's definitely worth getting it assessed because otherwise compensation is going to start.
4: Women Today, brought to you by Citywing.com, for your next flight away.
0: Last
2: week we received a message from the Isle of Man Constabulary which said it has been saddened by the news of the death of Margaret Corkle earlier this month. It continued, Margaret was highly regarded in the Constabulary and had the accolade of being the first female police officer recruited on the Isle of Man. She was selected into the force in in September 1967 and passed out of training in May 1968. So I've been finding out more from Detective Inspector in the Public Protection Unit, Michelle MacKillop. But first, I asked Inspector Derek Flint to tell me about Margaret Corkill.
5: She was a very special lady, and uh, in one particular respect she was a very notable lady as well, uh, because she was the first female officer in the Isle of Man Constabulary. Now, there were um, some auxiliary women officers that served uh, during the First World War in the, in the, the constabulary, um, but their service ended w- when the, the conflict ended. And there were some um, in uh, World War II, uh, they came up from London to work in the internment camps. But the, after that, there was a, there was a huge gap um, before women started to serve in the constabulary.
2: And that was the 1960s that she came along.
5: It was, yeah. Uh, Margaret was working for the police. She was um, a secretary at Ramsey Police Station uh, and there was also a a cadet up there at the time called uh, Pat Moss. Now, she was serving around the same time that that Margaret was uh, sworn in uh, and Pat actually became a constable um, when she reached her 19th birthday a short while later. So it all happened at once, really.
2: I think it's interesting because... Margaret actually had to wait until the regulations were changed to set out the pay and the conditions for female officers because it was that new.
5: It was that new, and it, it's, it's crackers when you think that today um, female officers make up such a large part of, of the, uh, the constabulary and, and, and constabaries in the UK, but it was a long time coming, and um, I suppose in the same way that there are still certain aspects of the armed services that are still debarred to, to women, it's it's still not cracked yet as a as an equality issue.
2: Do we know what the statistics are like on the Isle of Man for uh, representation, Michelle?
6: In the UK and Wales, we've got twenty seven point nine percent of police officers are female. On the island, we're slightly above that, twenty eight percent. I know it's point one, but it's it's that little bit more above the UK. <laughs> uh, so twenty eight percent of our officers are female um, and quite a proportion of those are fairly recently recruited as well so we've got quite a lot of young females within the force.
2: Do you think there's a difference between your male colleagues and yourself of how you're treated how you're looked at I suppose?
6: Potentially from the public maybe females do have the benefit of being able to calm certain situations down without antagonising or having another male presence so, you know if you've got two drunk males on the street sometimes a female officer could be best to to go and interact with those people Likewise, you know, two females fighting generally a male might might be more uh, of benefit. So I don't think there's any massive difference to, to how we're treated, if I'm honest. And I think within the organisation itself, certainly from my experience, there's no massive gaping gaps or, or issues within the constabulary. I think where the organisation do need to maybe have a look at things is, is where, you know, there might not have been a thought that certain officers are female that maybe want to apply for specialist roles. So, in order to do that, it would be maybe encouraging to ensure that females are accommodated within changing rooms and that sort of thing. So, that's the sort of thing that I think the organisation are now aware of uh, and moving forward will will be addressing these things.
5: I think, yeah, I mean, certainly in my time, I've been with the, the Constabulary since ninety eight, and, and um, I, I ran the recruitment side of things and training for for a number of years. One of the big fundamental changes when we moved to on island training. Because I certainly know um, I spoke to a number of uh, potentially really good candidates back in the day when I was I was running that side of the business who just couldn't handle being 15 weeks away from the family. I mean, some of them had young kids, and it just wasn't practical. It wasn't logistically uh, an option for them. So we, that's helped an awful lot. And it's those subliminal things that that's actually you you don't look at it as immediately as a as a bar to somebody joining but they are hugely impactive. so once that uh, opened up then we we saw uh, more female officers being interested in uh, in in joining and one of the the great things for me is over the past few years um, we had a little bit of a, a, a dip. Carolyn Kinraid, Raid, she, she retired a few years ago. and She retired as a superintendent and she was the first female officer to be promoted above the rank of constable. Um, and then there was, uh, there was Inspector Helen Mason as well. And we, we had a, a number of years where it was just a, a, a male-oriented um, atmosphere above the rank of sergeant. That's now changed with, with Shell. We have Kath Bradley who runs uh, runs Douglas. Things are starting to improve and, and that's been a real game changer because without a doubt there are subtleties in terms of the way that women think compared to men think and it just changed the dynamic for the good at a command level. So I, I'm looking forward to to, to see um, more colleagues sat around the ins- inspector's table um, like Michelle because they are a breath of fresh air.
2: Just finally then, how important do you think it is that we keep people like Margaret Corkle, like some of the other women around her in mind, these notable figures who, who really have paved a way for people like yourself, Michelle?
6: Yeah, absolutely. It's, it's, it's significant this year as well, because uh, throughout England and Wales, I don't know if you're aware, but we're celebrating 100 years of women in policing this year. And it is important that we remember these people and it's important as well to recognise that a lot of women who have achieved senior ranks um, have paved the way for for the likes of myself because we've got, I think we've got 13 inspectors within the constabulary and three of those are now female, Mm. so... You know, it is. We are moving forward and we are moving upwards, but it's um, it's a slow process, um, and and I don't think it's through any fault or error of anybody in particular or any organisation. It's just the way it's been, mm. and it just takes time to change these things. Do you think we'll ever have a female chief constable?
5: I think we will. I'm sorry. <laughs> we well, <I mean>, joke <laughs> apart. I mean, yeah, Michelle's got 15 years' service to to, to do yet, and um, I, I've uh, I've worked with Michelle for a long time. I've got an awful lot of confidence in her abilities. There are some very very bright, um, very well educated um, women in the in in the Isle of I, I I think it's I think it's inevitable.
2: Michelle MacKillop and Derek Flint from the Man Constabulary talking to me there. And Chief Constable Gary Roberts says, I had the privilege of working with Margaret. She was a kind, decent and compassionate woman who exemplified all that is good about the constabulary. She was well known, much liked and widely respected across the whole community. And I am sure that many people will have fond memories of her. Everyone in the constabulary is thinking of her family and friends at this sad time.
1: Now, as I mentioned, a little bit later on today's show, we're going to be talking about a service called Golden Memories, which basically sees the Isle of Man Alzheimer Society and Manx National Heritage working together to encourage people with dementia and their carers to talk about their memories. Our guests are Katie King, who's the Community Outreach and Learning Support Officer for Manx National Heritage, and Susan Walker, who's a dementia support worker with the Isle of Man Alzheimer Society. And as Susan First of all, your mum was diagnosed with Alzheimer's back in 2010. She died three years later. Can you just tell us what that period of your life was like?
7: Extremely difficult. It was um, seeing a person who'd been very lively and energetic just fade away because as her brain deteriorated, there was less that she could do. Um, and towards the end, for the last month of her life, she was on end-of-life support, so she was just lying on a bed with chemicals being pumped into her and uh, it just wasn't the same person and you just saw her fading away. How much did you know about Alzheimer's before that happened to her? Uh, To be quite honest, nothing. (laughs) Um, And when she was diagnosed, it was a major shock, because you'd heard the word, but you didn't know what it meant, you didn't know what was going to happen. Um, And so it took a bit of time to, to get used to it. But we were put in touch with the Alzheimer's Society, and they were just brilliant. They gave us information, they introduced us to services. My mother absolutely adored going to a tea dance that they ran once a week... I never knew that she loved dancing, but we used to go there and for about half an hour she would jig. I mean, it wasn't true dancing, but she would have a very enjoyable time. And if I wasn't watching her, she'd come and hit me on the leg and say, you're not watching me. And so it was really um, it was really incredible. Um, I used to attend a carer support group and that was just so brilliant because... I found I wasn't the only person living with somebody with dementia and experiencing the things that I did. And people would offer me advice as to how they had handled the same situations. And it was just just so incredibly helpful. So actually, that's why I now work for the Alzheimer's Society, because they were so marvellous to me and my mum. Um that when a job came up, I applied for it.
1: Well, that job was the befriending manager with the Alzheimer's Society in North Somerset. You took that job up in 2012, obviously still going through it very much personally at that time. How did you find find that that, that helped you in what you were going through?
7: It was because I could actually work with other carers um, and share with them my experiences, and they could share with me their experiences but i also wanted to give back some of the help that i had been given with my mother and that she had been given how well do you think people understand
1: things like dementia and alzheimers
7: unfortunately not very well it still has a stigma about it and um people almost react as though they think they could catch it as though it was you know a catchable disease. Um, And mum used to love going into supermarkets. And we would go in and I would take her. She loved buying her bottle of wine. She always headed for the wine aisle. (laughs) Um, But we'd stand in the queue at the checkout and she would take an awful lot longer. She couldn't identify money as quickly as she had done previously. So we'd be in a queue and people behind us would be tutting away saying, can't you hurry up? And it's you see those sorts of reactions quite frequently because outwardly people look quite ordinary, normal people, um, and the expectation is that they will react as rapidly as, as everybody else. But they're unable to because the processing of information takes longer. Um, and so... I just wish people would understand dementia. So I do go out and do dementia awareness sessions and hopefully
4: help people understand. It must be something that's really hard to diagnose because it can be a lot of the time as people are getting older and therefore it could be just memory loss that you think it's what your family are going through. Would you say that that was something that you ever thought that maybe it's just mum's got a bit of memory loss or... Yeah, it started in
7: that way, but then it she started repeating herself. So she'd ask me a question and I'd give an answer and 5 minutes later she'd ask exactly the same question. And so initially you start saying, "You've already said that." And she would look quite anxious and say, "No, I didn't." But as it kept on, you became very aware that there had to be some some problem. And so I went with her to the GP, although that took us a couple of visits before the GP decided that maybe there should be further investigations.
1: Well, Susan, you um, moved over to the island after your mum died. What brought you over here?
7: Ah, um, my mother-in-law has lived on the Isle of Man for over 30 years, and we're her only family, so she asked if we would move over. So we came over. And at the same time, the Alzheimer's Society opened an office in Douglas, very coincidentally. um, And I applied for the post of dementia support worker and wonderfully was given it. Well, we'll be talking um, a little bit more
1: about what you do later, Susan. But we're also joined today by Katie King, who was uh, born and educated here in the Isle of Man. Um, Katie, you (coughs) went to study history at Liverpool. You did an MA then in museum studies. I love this. You say you always had a passion for history and were stubbornly determined to use your degree as part of your career. Why was that?
8: Well, when I really remember when I was at Liverpool in particular, we had a, a careers day in, in the third year, the final year, when it's, everything's getting serious. And there was, you know, it was accountancy firms and law firms and banks and there was literally nobody there that was talking about history or heritage and i was thinking well i've just done three years doing what i love which is history surely there must be a career for in that and um someone said oh teaching of course you could do teaching go and do go go and go and do history teaching and i thought well okay but surely there's something else and right in the corner of this room there was one one lady sitting in a cardigan and um with no one around her and she was talking about museums and i said oh of course that's obvious um that's, that's a career I can, I can have where I can celebrate history every single day and obviously being from the Isle of Man I've always loved Max National Heritage and I genuinely believed that now I'd made this decision somebody would just write me a letter probably the v in London would write me a letter and say oh Miss King, you must want a career you want a career in heritage? could work for us and I was genuinely shocked that that didn't happen and then to discover that actually working in museums is one of those the most competitive jobs in in, in Britain Um, you know, every job that comes up there's Hundreds of applicants. So, um, I then p- discovered it was very difficult, and had had to maintain my stubbornness for a good two um, two years of volunteering and temporary contracts and all sorts of things until finally, hurrah! I got a paid job in in
1: museums. Well, you worked for a while in Grassmere and Liverpool before coming back over here to work at Manx National Heritage. And I just wonder how it felt getting a job in the field you wanted on the Isle of Man, because, as you say, those jobs don't really come up all that often.
8: Yeah, and I was so lucky. I always say this, I was very, very lucky. I was working in National Museums Liverpool as an assistant curator of transport. Um, I was looking after trains and trams, which probably isn't my expert area, and it was maternity post cover. And I was actually just thinking, right, I'm about to run out of job, I need to move anywhere in the country to find somewhere, and out of nowhere, a job came up on the Isle of Man as a trainee assistant curator, brand new post, um, They, to my knowledge, they hadn't c- recruited at Manchester Heritage in the curatorial section for about 10 years. Um, and I thought, I couldn't believe it, I couldn't believe it. So I applied for the job and had everything crossed because I thought oh, I could come home, I could live with my mum and dad and save loads of money, it'd be amazing. And, and I was so lucky because I did get that job and I know there's a lot of applicants. And am sorry about that for everybody else. Um, yeah, and then I, I came home and haven't really looked back. That was 11 years ago and I, I've done all sorts of different things at Max Social Heritage, but just so lucky that that job came up at that exact time I needed one.
1: Well, now you are the Community Outreach and Learning Support Officer. You took that particular role up in 2009. What is it you actually do?
8: My job is commu- is in community learning. So I sit within the um, education team of MacSuttle Heritage. I say team, there's just two of us, me and my colleague Anthea. Um, and my job is to inspire local people with the heritage around them. So um, I can be doing everything from... Um, planning big brownie adventures where we um, pretend that a ruby's been stolen from the Manx Museum and we invite 200 girls in and the police to solve that mystery to working in care homes and um, doing reminiscence sessions um, I do a lot of public programming and events for visitors as well so it's all about um, the informal education side of things the entertaining the fun the curious and um working on Museum Theatre at the moment as well with our in-house theatre group Labyrinth so that's some of the things I do, it's a very diverse job
1: Well talking about Reminiscence then, this is where Golden Memories comes in, we are going to be talking about it in much more detail later but can you give us a brief overview Katie of, of what it's all about
8: Yeah so I've been, when I when I took over the job in 2000, sorry when I took on the job in 2009, one of the the biggest things I was asked to do by care homes was, oh, can you offer some reminiscing, some reminiscence sessions? And I didn't really know what that was, so I looked into it a lot. So we can talk more about that later. But um, I'd met with Susan um, last year, uh, mid-last year, just just when she she moved to the island, and she asked whether Manx National Heritage might be amenable to supporting these golden memory sessions, which are um, object-handling sessions, using objects from our collections and and photographs from our collections to run um, happy dementia friendly sessions and I said that's really funny Susan because that's that's what I've been doing already but taking (laughs) taking out into care homes and how much easier actually if you came to us so we we had a we had a trial in October last year that ran right through to to now and and we've enjoyed it so much that we're we're trying to um get get more people to get involved because because we absolutely love it.
2: And we're talking about sexually transmitted infections, as a strain of the STI gonorrhea, which doesn't respond to antibiotics, has been discovered in the north of England. It's been dubbed super gonorrhea, and a national alert across the UK has been issued after 15 cases were confirmed. Here's Ed Oldham with the details.
5: The outbreak was first detected in Leeds in March. It's since spread, with cases reported in Macclesfield, Oldham and Scunthorpe. Public Health England has detected 15 cases so far, all involving heterosexual patients. Medical experts say the implication is that there's a lot more of the strain out there and it needs to be stamped out as quickly as possible. Gonorrhoea is the second most common bacterial STI in the UK after chlamydia.
2: And Sky's health correspondent, Thomas Moore, says doctors fear it may have spread.
5: There is this feeling that uh, although there are only 15 confirmed cases, there are many others that have yet to be diagnosed. The problem with gonorrhoea is that uh, you don't always get symptoms. And of course, unless you know it, you can't be taking precautions.
2: So is there reason to be worried here on the Isle of Man? Well, this morning I went to the Genito-Urinary medicine department at Nobles Hospital to find out and first asked senior health advisor Amanda Dawson to explain exactly what the infection is.
9: Gonorrhea is a sexually transmitted infection um, that is caused by a bacteria called Neisseria gonorrhea. Generally, it can cause symptoms of. Um, in males, they might have some pain when passing urine. They might notice some um, discharge coming from the penis. Females might notice some discharge or perhaps some pain, you know, in the lower abdomen. But that's not always the case. Um, some people have it and have no symptoms whatsoever. How serious is it long term? Like chlamydia, gonorrhoea can cause long term complications such as pelvic inflammatory disease in females, long-term chronic pelvic pain, and in males you can get um, chronic testicular pain. So if it's left untreated, it can have quite serious consequences um, for people. So
2: recently we've heard in the UK of super gonorrhoea, What exactly does that mean?
9: What that means is there's been a new strain of gonorrhea identified which is not responding to the standard treatment and historically over the last generation gonorrhea has changed. It manages to get resistance to antibiotics and so in in my time in in GUM here we've already had to change the standard treatment two or three times to respond to this kind of global change in the bacteria itself.
2: So it's got kind of more intelligent it's, it's smarter the strain?
9: Um, it's, it seems so but I think it, it is very intelligent in that it is adapting and it is becoming resistant to antibiotics but I think um, what people what the general public need to be aware of is that in general antibiotics can be misused they're not taken as prescribed and that gives bacteria an opportunity to kind of change and become resistant to the antibiotics so that that's really the message people should take antibiotics with caution and as prescribed.
2: Have you seen any patients with supergonorrhea here on the Isle of Man?
9: Uh, no, we haven't, um, but that doesn't mean it won't happen. The cases that have been identified are in the north of England. Um, first it was in Leeds and it's already spread a- across to the northwest and the Isle of Man's quite... Um, close geographically to the north northwest, and people do travel on and off islands so it's not that far away. I suppose the north of England as well is somewhere where a lot of people go off to university
2: you know we've just had Leeds Festival it's somewhere you must see people coming in and saying they're off to Leeds quite frequently.
9: We do we get lots of young people who are um, which is great they come in to have a check-up before they go off to university or they come back and have a check-up when they've been away at university it's to be applauded really that young people are looking after their sexual health it's fantastic However... What we would say is if you're going to go away to university or you're going away to any of the festivals, please prepare yourself for going away and think about your sexual health and, and we promote condom use because gonorrhea is a preventable infection. If you practice safer sex and use a condom, you are less likely to get it.
2: I think we should make it clear, it's not just, of course, young people who are at risk of, uh, of getting gonorrhea.
9: Anybody who has unprotected sex with a partner who they don't know about their sexual history or whether they've had a checkup could be at risk of gonorrhea.
2: So we haven't seen any cases of super gonorrhea, to use that phrase, here on the Isle of Man yet. But you say that gonorrhea is on the rise.
9: Yes, it is an infection that we used to see very little of um, in previous years. But in the last couple of years, we've actually seen more cases than we've had. So it's, it has arrived on the Isle of Man. <laughs> if anyone is concerned about their sexual health, what should they do next? Anybody who has any concerns of their sexual health, I would say book an appointment at GUM have a check-up um, and I would like to take this opportunity to say that having a checkup is not as scary as some people think it is we have absolutely fantastic testing now and in most cases you don't even need to be examined you can do for males it's just a simple urine test and for females they can take a swab themselves should they wish there's always the option of having an examination as well so the testing is not as scary and the staff here are absolutely fantastic they're all used to people who are terrified embarrassed all the all the things that people have said to us over the years very skilled professionals who would make them feel at ease and of course anonymity is a big concern here on the Isle of Man i think anyone who comes in here would be worried they might possibly bump into someone they know but that's something that you guys take really seriously as well we we do confidentiality is the cornerstone of all of our work we wouldn't be able to function if we didn't protect people's confidentiality We can't do anything about who they might know in the waiting room, but what we do say to all of our patients, anybody who's sat in that waiting room, you don't know why they're there. They might be there because of somebody else's actions, not their own. Um, They might be there with their partners, just being very responsible and having a check-up. And what we say is the people that are in the waiting room are the responsible people. It's the ones that we don't reach, that don't come to the clinic, that we're trying to reach out to, to encourage them to come in. Where can we find more information online? There is a website um, called Crash Test Tim, um, which is a local website, and we were asked to do a feature on um, sexual health on that website, and I would say have a look at it. It gives a virtual tour of the department. There's frequently asked questions. There's also... A live forum for asking questions, so you can put a question anonymously and an expert would give you an answer through that um, website. So it's a great resource, especially for young people, anybody at school, lots and lots of information on there about all different conditions um, and there's our contact details on there as well if people want to make an appointment. Senior Health Advisor Amanda Dawson from
2: Nobles Hospital's Gum Clinic speaking to me there. And that website again is crashtest.im.
1: Thanks as always to our amazing guests. And as ever, it's never too late for you to get involved. Head over to Facebook, find the Women Today Facebook page and you can comment there or you can follow us at Today on Twitter. And you can listen again to the full programmes on manxradio.com or join us every weekday live from just after two o'clock.